Acts 19 is where we're going to be, and we are going to be looking at I what I think, anyway, is a very unique passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 19, the second half of 19. We're going to be in verses 21 through 41 this morning. I think it's unique in several different ways. One of those ways I think that it's unique is that Paul is briefly mentioned only a few times in our passage this morning. Paul is not the main character in our section of Scripture here. He doesn't get a lot of screen time in this episode, you could say. Paul is also very passive in this section as well, which is also not very characteristic of Paul in the book of Acts. It seems that Paul is always doing or saying something. That's not the case today. As a matter of fact, there are not very many believers who show up at all in our passage this morning. Only two other believers are mentioned, Gaius and Aristarchus. And they are only mentioned a couple of times in a couple of verses and that's it for the believers. The rest of this section this morning that we're going to see is all from the perspective of those who oppose the gospel and those who do not believe in the good news of Jesus, which is a really interesting thing to see in such a long, a long section to see this sort of perspective taking place. I mean, just think about this. Not many fiction books or movies are told from the perspective of the antagonist, right? Star Wars is not told from the perspective of Darth Vader. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is not told from the perspective of the White Witch. Jurassic Park is not told from the perspective of the dinosaurs. And Moby Dick is not told from the perspective of the whale, even though it probably should be, right? Since the book is named after him. But that's not what we see. But if those books and those movies were told from the perspective of the antagonist, I would imagine those books would read really differently. And those movies would be viewed very differently too, right? Because we would read those books and we would see those movies from a very different perspective. And we would gain some very unique insights from those perspectives. And that's exactly what we are going to get here in our passage in Acts chapter 19 this morning. Now, remember, if you were here last week when we started and we looked at the first half of Acts chapter 19, we saw an several amazing results of the gospel taking place in the city of Ephesus. It is here in Ephesus that we see that there were 12 men, remember, who had heard of the baptism of John, but had not heard about Jesus yet. Paul proclaims Jesus to them. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, much like a mini Pentecost. It looks very similar to what happened in Acts chapter 2. It just shows that the gospel is continuing. It's further spread throughout the region and to the ends of the world. We saw God doing all sorts of amazing miracles through Paul, right? Paul was very active in the first half of Acts chapter 19. That Remember, even handkerchiefs and aprons that were touched by Paul were taken away to cast out demons to show that there's nothing that compares to the power of God. 
It says that there were many believing in Jesus, that the name of Jesus is being extolled. We don't use that word very much, but basically what it means is the name of Jesus is being magnified and praised and celebrated. It tells us that many who were practicing magic as their occupation were turning to Jesus, and as a result, they were burning their books in public for all to see. 50,000 pieces of silver, or as Seth pointed out last week, over $6 million worth of magic books are up in a puff of smoke. Showing for all to see in the town that these people now treasure Jesus more than their magic books. They are treasuring Jesus more than their most prized possession that they're treasuring Jesus even more than their livelihood, their occupation as magicians. I mean, they were kind of out of a job at this point once they burned up their books. This must have been an incredible scene to see in the city of Ephesus. I mean, the city was turned upside down because of the work of Jesus that was going on in the city. I mean, I'll tell you, if I could time travel, if I could get my DeLorean and time travel back in time, this is the place that I would want to go. I would want to be in Acts 19 and see all of these things happening and just watch and to see the power of God working in the gospel, doing amazing things in this city. But not everyone is happy to see all of these things that are happening in Ephesus. And we're going to clearly see that in our passage this morning. Here we're going to see the antagonist view of what is taking place in the gospel. We're going to see those who are enemies of the gospel and don't believe in the gospel and their reaction to everything that is happening in their city. So let's read this together. We're going to be in Acts 19, verses 21 through 41. It's going to be on the screen, hopefully. You want to turn to your Bible on your phone. And if you could stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Esdras, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you have known that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 
So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Ezra's, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. And since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, the first thing that we see in verses uh, 21 and 22 are Paul's future plans after his time in Ephesus. It's here we see that Paul is determined to not only go to Jerusalem, but eventually work his way to Rome. This is something that we're going to see actually unfold when we come to the end of the book of Acts. Paul is deeply burdened to go to Rome in order to preach the gospel there. But before Paul goes on this journey, we see this crazy scene that takes place in Ephesus. Verse 23 says that there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words... There's a really big disturbance that takes place in Ephesus because of Jesus, because of the gospel. The message of Jesus is going to create a large commotion in the city. There's this silversmith named Demetrius, right? And this guy, he is leading the charge. Demetrius' job, what he did for his business was as a silversmith, he was crafting these silver shrines of Artemis. I'm guessing that a lot of people, as they were going to the temple to worship Artemis, would buy themselves this little shrine and as they were coming to worship her. Maybe a little keepsake. Verse 24 tells us that Demetrius brought no little business to the craftsmen, which basically means he made a big business in this, in this role, in this occupation that he had of selling these silver shrines. Demetrius is used to making the big bucks, selling his shrines, but not anymore. 
Something is happening in the city of Ephesus that is significantly affecting his business. Or more accurately, someone is happening, right? Because Jesus is happening in the city. And because Jesus is working and moving, business for Demetrius is bad. But not only for Demetrius, it seems that many of the other tradesmen have come under the same financial hardship that we see. We see Demetrius, he gathers all these tradesmen together to discuss their common problem that they are having. And we see how big of a financial effect this is taking on them in verses 25 and 26. Here's some of the things that we see in this passage. It's told to us again that these men have become wealthy from their trade. And that business has really been good for them. But here comes this Paul. This Paul has come and has proclaimed that Artemis and other man-made idols are not gods at all. The text tells us, at least what Demetrius believes, is that many people are following Paul, not only in, in the message of Jesus, not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia as well. The gospel is having a great influence in the culture. And so the result of Paul's message of Jesus is that their wealthy trade is being threatened to come to disrepute which basically means it's being threatened to come to nothing. Not only is their business threatened, but it seems that the worship of Artemis at her great temple that is in the heart of Ephesus there is also coming to nothing. Obviously, what must be happening is fewer and fewer people are going to this temple to worship her. Jesus is being extolled and praised and magnified in the city. And as a result, Artemis is starting to lose her magnificence. And it's from these words from Demetrius that we can see there's this radical ripple effect of the gospel taking place in Ephesus, right? Seems that fewer and fewer people are caring about Artemis anymore. These the, the purchase of silver shrines is down. The tradesmen are fearing of losing their wealth and having to close up shop. Temple worship attendance is declining. This great hall is starting to become vacant and empty. The gospel is having a huge impact on the city, right? The gospel is affecting the idolatry in the city. The gospel is affecting the economy of the city, and the gospel is affecting the culture of the city. Demetrius is feeling financially threatened, which shows us this probably really isn't about Artemis for him, is it? It's really about Demetrius's bottom line, I think. Artemis may be the shrine, but money was his idol. And the words of Demetrius begins to spread in the other tradesmen that causes quite an uproar in the city, as verses 28 through 34 shows us. That all these tradesmen are trying to get the rest of the city all stirred up and put into an uproar in order to bring an end to Christianity and get their business up and running again. You know, what they're really wanting to do is they're wanting to get things back to normal. Let's get the focus back on Artemis and worshiping of her. They're all worried about their financial security, and they're going to do whatever they can to help preserve that. 
And then we see this chaotic scene that begins to unfold in Ephesus, right? There are all these people that are upset. The Artemis worship people, it says that they rush into this theater in protest. And that it seems like they're dragging innocent bystanders along with them too, right? Some people there, it's like, why are we even here? What's going on? Confusion is mentioned twice in our passage in verse 29 and 32. There's lots of confusion on. People are shouting one thing and some are shouting another. Some don't know why they're here. They've just all gotten caught up in the rush of it all. So to say that there's confusion at this moment is probably an understatement, right? And then there's these two believers, these two companions of Paul, Gaius and Aristarchus, who are also drugged into the theater by this upset crowd. Obviously, it must be because of their association with Paul and the message of Jesus that they get drugged into this theater by this crowd. And they're getting mixed up in the middle of this as well. Now, Paul wants to get mixed up into the middle of it all, right? What do we see, Paul? He's rip-roaring, ready to go. He wants to intervene. He's ready to step into this chaotic scene in typical Paul fashion, right? He's ready to roll. But the interesting thing is that these companions have a different idea for Paul, right? And they tell him, hey, you need to stay back. And the interesting thing is that Paul listens to them. He doesn't run headlong into the perspective of persecution, right? He actually stops, listens to the advice that's given to him, heeds the counsel of his friends, and he stays. Which is, as a side note, I think is a really good lesson for us, right? Listening to godly counsel is a good thing, and sometimes there are things for even people like Paul and for us to learn from that. So, but the Jews, they decide, hey, it's a good idea, we better put one of ours forward. So somehow Alexander gets drafted for this job. And I think the reason that this is taking place is that the Jews are wanting to separate themselves from the Christians, right? And we say, hey, 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 we don't have anything to do with these guys over here. You know, they're wanting to keep themselves protected and, and, and their people group safe. But this plan backfires because all it does is stirs up the hostile Artemis crowd even more, right? That says, for two hours, the people cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, can you imagine that? Shouting that phrase repeatedly for two hours? I mean, I'll tell you, I've been to some, I've been to a lot of Husker football games and some pretty exciting ones. I've been like, I've been to like three Oklahoma games, right? And, you know, you got a worked up crowd there. But I'll tell you this, as as exciting as some of the games that I've been to, I don't think I ever shouted Go Big Red for two hours straight. You know what I'm saying? This is one worked up crowd. This is a chaotic scene that is going on here. And it's at this point that we see this town clerk or a city official step forward to to deal with this crowd and the chaos that is unfolding. We see that he does this in several different ways in verses 35 through 41. The first thing that we see is that basically he's trying to reassure the crowd, hey guys, hey, 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 Artemis is still great. We can't deny it. We are the central hub for Artemis worship. She's still great. He even connects what is believed to be a meteor that fell at Ephesus at some point in time. That he's, I think he's somehow connecting to the validity of Artemis and her greatness. So he's reassuring the crowd. 
The second thing he does, which I also think is really interesting, is he's wanting to remind the people, or he's trying to communicate or convince the people that Gaius and Aristarchus really haven't done anything wrong. Which is why he says that these two men haven't done anything sacrilegious or blasphemers of Artemis. Which is a really interesting thing for him to say, right? Because Demetrius earlier said that gods made by hands are not gods at all. So Paul and his associates definitely said some things about Artemis. But yet he's trying to like reassure the crowd, no, these guys are really okay. And we'll see why I think he's doing this here in a minute. Third, he reminds the people, hey, there's a proper way that you deal with the complaint. Hey, you got to go through the courts and the pro council. You got to go through the regular assembly. Hey, guys, this is the way things are done. You got to do it this way. This is the wrong way of doing it. And finally, we get to the heart of what I think is really going on with this city clerk. He warns the people if they keep up the ruckus that they are causing, Rome is going to come in and is going to take tight control of their city. And that is what Rome will do to bring it into the commotion. That's what he talks about in verse 40. I think he's saying the same thing up in verse, or he's implying the same thing up in verse 36, where he's wanting to cry at the crowd and he wants to get them to do nothing rash. He doesn't want Rome come in and take over. And he must obviously get through the crowd at this point because it looks like nobody in Ephesus probably really wants Rome and their interference of controlling the city. Because by the time we get to the end of our passage in verse 41, we see that the town clerk got through to the people, that the, the crowd is dispersed, the chaos is over, it's finished, it's done. And that's quite an ordeal here at the back half of chapter 19, is it not? So what are, some things, what, are some, what are some takeaways that we can have from our passage this morning? This is a unique passage of Scripture. Now, I'm going to give a, a few here this morning. The first one is this, is that the gospel has the power to change a culture. The gospel has a power to change the, the culture. Just think of Ephesus. It is full of magicians and idol worshiping. I mean, just think about that idea of $6 million worth of books being burnt up. That is a, it has to be a whole lot of books by a whole lot of people bringing that forward. And it just shows how much this magic had influenced the city. It's the central hub for Artemis worship. I mean, this is a very heathen city. Yet Ephesus is not beyond the reach of the gospel. Just as we saw um, earlier when we were looking at how the gospel influenced the heathen city of Corinth, it's doing the same thing here in Ephesus. And that is good news, right? That is another good reminder for us that no person, that no city, that no culture, that no country is beyond the reach of the gospel. Even today. Think of the hardest heart that you can think of. Think of the toughest group to reach for the gospel. And I would encourage you to remember this. They are no match for what Jesus can do in their life. People are not stronger than the power of the gospel. 
This is why Paul famously said what he did in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, and that it is the gospel, so you could say, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. And we see the power of God in the gospel on full display here in Ephesus. The gospel makes such a great impact on the city that the culture around them notices. No one in this passage, no one in Acts chapter 19, 21 through 41, is denying the powerful work of the gospel that is taking place in the city. They clearly see it, they just don't like it, but they cannot deny it. Demetrius notices that the gospel and what the gospel is doing in his city, because Jesus has made a significant impact in the culture and on the economy. And Demetrius is not just the isolated incident, right? The gospel has made this wide-sweeping change in the culture because all of the tradesmen are experiencing the same financial crunch that Demetrius is dealing with. Jesus is radically affecting the way people view the culture around them. But the gospel doesn't just affect the tradesmen, right? The gospel is also affecting the temple attendance. Because attendance is down at this great hall, this great Artemis temple. Because Jesus is making an impact there too, right? People are now more about worshiping Jesus and following him than they are about worshiping Artemis and following her. And the reason all of this is happening, because I believe here's the, here's the second observation here this morning, is that the gospel exposes and confronts our idols. I mean, just think of all of the idols that are being exposed here in Acts chapter 19 here. Magic and, and books of magic these shrines of Artemis, worship at the temple of Artemis, wealth, money, and business success. And I would even say comfort, which I believe that's the idol of the town clerk. That's the why I think that temple or the town clerk says all the things that he does. Because I don't think he's really concerned about the temple in Artemis. I think he's concerned about his comfort. That's why he's even wanting to give Gaius and Aristarchus a pass. Because I think he is more concerned about comfort, keeping Rome out of his city and being comfortable, than he even is about Artemis. Now, today we don't have Artemis, right? Artemis isn't a thing, much anyway, that I know of. There's no temple of Artemis or, or shrines. We don't have lots of books of magic laying around in our houses, probably. But 2,000 later, some of the idols haven't changed, have they? Wealth, money, business success, even comfort. Those are idols we can still struggle with today, right? At least I know I do. I like my comfort. I, I can tell that's an idol, and I can tell that's an idol for me because when I'm, when I'm in a place of discomfort, it really makes me upset, right? I don't like it. And there's so many more idols that we battle and deal with today, right? I mean, John Calvin famously said this, the human heart is a perpetual idol 
factory. Which means we have no problem creating our own idols, right? Things that we value and treasure more than we do the things of God. And the reason that we are always and continually running after idols is because our hearts, it yearns to worship something. I mean, that's what we are created to do. We were created to worship God. That's what we were made to do. But when sin entered the world, it turned all of our attention inward and not Godward. So we worship all of these things around us instead of worshiping God. That's what sin, that's one of the many things that sin did to us. But when the gospel comes and invades your life, Jesus opens your eyes to the idols that we have and exposes them for what they really are. As Acts 19 says, God made with hands that are not God's at all. And once this happens, the real work of the gospel begins, right? Because it shows us at that moment what it is that our hearts have truly been longing for the whole time. And that is the worship and treasuring of God. St. Augustine said this, There's a God-shaped hole in the human heart that only God can fill. Augustine also went on to say, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And it is the gospel that opens our eyes to, one, show us how small the idols are that we're trying to stuff into that God-sized hole in our heart to bring us satisfaction. And then also helps us recognize that God himself is the only one that is big enough to fill that gaping hole in our heart. This is how these people in Ephesus who trust in Jesus can burn their valuable books of magic. And how they can quit buying Artemis shrines and quit going to her temple to worship her. They see now that all of those things are too small. They're all too small. And they see that Jesus is the only one that is big enough to fill their hearts. That Jesus is bigger than $6 million worth of books. So a good evaluating question for us to be asking this morning is what idol is trying to work its way into your heart? And I believe that if Calvin is right, we need to be asking this question often and repeatedly. Because if we're always trying to create idols, we always need to be aware of what idols may be lurking in our heart. And it can be scary. It can be scary to, for the light of the gospel to shine in our heart and expose those idols. But it's worth it. Because Jesus comes in and replaces what was once there. Augustine had this quote, and I think this is one of my, one of my all-time favorite quotes ever. Um, Augustine said this, How sweet it was all at once for me to be rid of those fruitless joys, which I would call the idols that we worship, which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. Oh, Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. 
Augustine was able to see that in Jesus, there's more joy, there's more satisfaction, there's more love than what any idol can bring. Because Jesus is the greatest treasure that we could ever own. That's why Jesus would say things like that he is the bread of life, that he is the living water, that we are meant to come and eat and drink of him and be satisfied and to see how good he is. But the, all, the gospel can also bring opposition, right? Unfortunately, not everyone in Ephesus came to Jesus. There will be times when people will oppose you and will oppose the message of Jesus. Yes, there's a great gospel explosion that takes place in Ephesus. And it's awesome to see the power of Jesus on full display in the city. But it's not all puppies and rainbows for the believers in Ephesus, is it? There's also hardship. There is also opposition. But notice what happens here in Ephesus, the gospel keeps growing. We know this because what we're going to see in a few weeks later in Acts chapter 20, Paul works his way back to, to Ephesus, and guess what? The believers are still there. The church is still there. The riot and all that happened in Ephesus did not stop the growth of the church and of the gospel. And we know this also to be true because even later on after that, what does Paul do? Paul takes a time to write a book called the book of Ephesians to this church. He writes to them. And the reason he writes to them is because the church is still there. The church is still growing. No riot brought an end to the church in Ephesus. And the reason that the gospel will continue to grow and spread, even when there is opposition, is because of this. When Jesus is seen as the highest treasure and the greatest reward, Jesus will be worth standing for and Jesus will be worth suffering for. He is that valuable. The final thing that I want to say this morning is just, this is the thought that I had over and over again over this past week as I was reading and thinking about Acts chapter 19 and thinking about holistically about the whole chapter. And the thought is this, wouldn't it be awesome to see something like Acts chapter 19 happen today? Wouldn't it be awesome to see the gospel do this sort of powerful work in our city? Wouldn't it be awesome to see the power of the gospel do an incredible work in our culture, in our country? I mean, it would be truly amazing to see something like this, an Acts 19 moment, take place here. So, can I just encourage you with something this morning? Can I encourage you to make it your daily habit, a daily practice to pray that God would move in a powerful way in the lives of men and women in our city and in our country. That the gospel would do a powerful work. That great many people would come and trust in Christ. In closing this morning, I want to tell you about a guy named, named Jeremiah Lamphere. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jeremiah Lamphere. He lived in New York City. 
back in 1857. Lamphere was just a layman, which means he wasn't a pastor. He was a lay missionary, and he wanted to see the Lord move in his city. He wanted to see the Lord move in New York City. So Lamphere tried to do, to do several different things, but nothing seemed to be working. So after a lot of failures, Lamphere decided that he was going to hold a weekly prayer meeting at noon and invited businessmen in New York City to come and pray over the noon hour. At his very first prayer meeting, 30 minutes rolled on and nobody came. Finally, though, five men walked in and prayed with Lamphere. Uh, the following week, 14 people showed up to pray. Six months later, there was somewhere between 10,000 and 30,000 people praying, not weekly, but daily, in 20 different locations all around New York City. 10 to 30,000 people at a time when the population in New York was 800,000 people. It is estimated that 10,000 people a week were trusting in Jesus in New York City. This is what has become known as the Fullerton Street Revival or the Businessmen Revival. Some people also refer to it as the Third Great Awakening, which, is the, which was the last national revival that swept across the United States. Because prayer meetings like this began to pop up all over the United States. They started to pop up all along the East Coast. Places like Connecticut, Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New Jersey, Washington, D.C. But then it began to move and prayer meetings began to show up in Chicago, in St. Louis, in Cleveland, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Detroit, Minneapolis, and even in Omaha. It's estimated that between 19, or I'm sorry, 1857 and 1858, one million people trusted in Jesus. One million people at a time when there were only 30 million people in the United States. That equates to about 3% of the population of the United States at that time came to trust Christ. All because people just gathered to pray. That's all they did. Prayer meetings. And as a result, the country was turned upside down. Wouldn't it be awesome today if we saw 3% of the population of the United States come to Christ in the coming year? That'd be around 10 million people coming to trust in Jesus. That would be awesome to see. Couldn't you imagine the change that took place in our country if another revival, a nationwide revival, would come? I mean, we could use some revival, couldn't we? It doesn't take very long to watch the news headlines and things that are going on to make you go, we need a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his people. I mean, what if Jesus moved in our country today the way he moved here in Acts chapter 19, the way he moved in the city of Ephesus? How could the gospel impact our community, our culture, and our economy. So I just began to think, what could that look like? What could that look like if that sort of thing happened here? What could happen? Would the pornography business go bankrupt? Would sex trafficking be eliminated? 
would people fully and joyfully embrace the overturning of Roe versus Wade? Would we return to a biblical view of marriage and family? Would racism disappear? Would mass shootings come to an end? Would the opioid crisis decrease? Now, I know that a lot of people just think just by overturning or changing laws will bring about reform, right? Now, hear me. I think laws are good. I think laws are needed. But at the end of the day, laws do not legislate the heart, do they? That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is what legislates hearts. And we need the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of men and women men and women across our land in order to bring salvation that when salvation comes change comes that's what happened in acts 19 right salvation came and as a result of the salvation that came to people the culture changed that's the order the heart is changed by the gospel the heart is changed by jesus and when the heart is changed everything else changed And this is only done by the power of the Holy Spirit working in people. Which is why I would encourage you to make it a daily habit to pray that God would come and bring salvation in our city, in our country, and even in our world. The gospel would come and do a powerful thing. So that's what I want us to do now to end our time this morning. What we do uh, a couple Sundays a month is we just dedicate a time uh, to prayer corporately because we believe in prayer. We believe in the power of prayer. And so what I want you to do here in a moment is get with your family or the people that you came here with or the people that you're sitting around this morning. I want you to pray for a few things. One, let's pray for that. Let's pray that revival would come. Let's pray that salvation would come. Let's pray that idols would be exposed. Maybe even for you this morning, there's something that God is stirring in your heart and saying, you know, this is an idol that you need to deal with in your life. Let's pray that idols would be revealed. And then let's pray that we would treasure Jesus more than anything. So those are the three things that I would encourage you to pray. Let's pray for revival. Let's pray for idols to be exposed. And let's pray that there would be a greater treasuring for Jesus, for us, for our church, for our city, and for our world. So let's just take a few moments now, and let's just pray where you are.
come to you this morning because we need you. We desperately need you. Lord, we can look around at, at our country and our culture and see that we're looking to a whole lot of places to find the answers to the problems that are taking place. And ultimately, answers aren't found in policies or political parties or new ideas or technology or even our own wisdom. The answer is found in you. The solution is found in you and you alone. So I pray, Father God, that the power of the gospel would work in a mighty way and that there would be people that are tired of searching for their identity in almost everything but you. And that you would open eyes to help people see their idols and their uh, things that they're aligning with and identifying with are just so, so small. That's why we keep moving from one thing to the next to the next, because nothing is really going to fill our hearts but you. Yet we know that the only way we can see that is by you working and moving. So I do, I pray that you would work and move in a powerful way to help men and women see that they need Jesus. That Jesus is the answer. That Jesus is the solution. That Jesus is the one that satisfies our hearts. That knowing Jesus is better than anything else in this world. Not even close. Pray that you would help us to see what are our idols that we are struggling with. And I pray that you would help us, even if we're afraid to lose them and let them go, that you would help in that work and that we would see how brighter and more beautiful and more satisfying you are. I pray that you would help us treasure Jesus more than anything. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Uh, before I read our benediction, just real quick, there is, um, there is a basket in the foyer back there. And that basket is there because uh, this is the second Sunday of the month. And what we do um, every time this rolls around is that we take up a benevolent offering, which is different than our regular offering. Um, a benevolent offering is specifically given there for people in our church who may have some sort of financial need. And so if you want to give to that, there's a basket of foyer. You can put that there. And if you have a need, please um, let me know. Let one of the elders know. Uh, we would love to help. We consider it a, an honor and a joy to be able to help. So just know that that is available as well. So if you could stand with me and read our benediction. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, which says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.